Welcome to the Phase World Podcast, engaging conversations that cross the boundaries between business, art, and the digital world. Welcome back to the Face World Podcast, episode number 35. I'm your host, Fei Wu. It is absolutely nuts for me to see this number 35. I gotta pinch myself to believe that I've so far released this many episodes to date in less than six months. So far, I have interviewed a variety of sung and unsung heroes who are, as you know, musicians, actors, teachers, artists, athletes, women in business, and so many more. After I interviewed Claudia Zula Altucher a few months ago, my company, Arnold Worldwide, invited her to present at our New York City office. How exciting is that? And her husband, James Altucher, one of my favorite influencers and one of the most inspiring authors of our time, also came to our office. To stay on top of all the new podcast episodes and have them delivered to your mailbox, social news feeds, simply sign up for my newsletter on faceworld.com or follow me with the same social handle, that is faceworld via Facebook, Twitter. I'm also on Quora and became a huge fan this year. My very special guest today is Sam Ford. Sam was introduced to me by Josh Green. Remember him from episode number two back in November 2014? Sam and Josh co-authored the book, Spreadable Media, Creating Value and Meaning in a Networked Culture. When you hear the word media, you may already be thinking about the word viral. But viral indicates or hints at that people don't even try to pass that content around. But that's not really how culture works. That is simply how virus works. One of the many interesting point of views from this book confirms that the act of sharing, critiquing, passing along information are profoundly creative, and it gives people a great deal of pleasure and drives people's engagement. At Peppercom, there are three major components of Sam's job, from client consulting, design thinking, how that applies to communication, and finally, the writing, speaking, being an industry board. Sounds pretty cool, right? So the first question I had to ask Sam was, what was the process for Sam to combine his knowledge and experience from academia, consulting, journalism, and pop culture to do what he does today? Whether you are already in marketing, advertising, consulting, or running your own business, or working in legal, finance, Sam's words of wisdom speak to all walks of life. I was able to learn tremendous amount of knowledge from Sam. I hope you all enjoy this episode as much as I did. A quick suggestion, if you don't finish this interview today, make sure that you come back for the second half when Sam reveals his prediction analysis for what's next for social sphere. Beyond Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Quora, this is a question that clients often ask. We dove into the idea of collective intelligence, crowdsourcing, which can be very powerful but also terrifying at the same time. Everything is a trade-off. Last but not least, Sam and his family live in Kentucky, and in case you haven't visited yet, Sam offers some great advice that left me feeling very intrigued. If you would like Sam to further elaborate on topics mentioned in this episode, please drop me a note on faceworld.com or via Facebook and Twitter. Without further ado, please welcome Sam Ford. Um, I find 
your story, your path to be really fascinating. But you know what I was thinking today, even before I jumped on this interview, was uh, you live in Kentucky. Is that correct? That's right. Oh, wow. That alone is fascinating to me because... <laughs> it was interesting to me. I had, I had a, uh, somebody, a colleague when I moved back to Kentucky. I won't say who it was. <laughs> he said it's a shame that you're going to move back to Kentucky. Like he didn't put it quite this way, but it's basically there's a lot in the media world you could have done with your life. Shame, you know, like like as if I were just going to like drop off the face of the earth if I weren't living in New York any longer. Um, oh man, I didn't know you lived in New York as well as yeah, well as Boston. I lived in New York for for two years after I left Boston. I see. Wow. So uh, this is. Quite fascinating, and I feel like I have a million questions for Kentucky um, because I've never been. I think you might be the only friend now that I have who's originally from there. And you know, like diversity is this theme on my podcast. I just love talking to people from different places in the world, or honestly, even domestically here in the United States, because the cultures are so drastically different. From one it's, another. It's true. Well, I'll have a lot to say on that subject, so I look. I don't want to uh, <laughs> waste any of the material now. But yeah, that'd, that'd, be, a great, that'd be a great line of inquiry. Oh, fantastic. Well, certainly get there. So stay tuned. You know, I would love for you to provide a more up-to-date introduction of yourself. Like, what are you working on these days at Peppercom? We talked about this last time, and still your affiliation with MIT. What will get you excited? What get you out of bed every day? Yeah, sure. I, I think you know, I'd like to talk about, uh, really, there's three parts to, to my job. Um, I spend a third of my time doing client consulting, so I can talk a little bit about the type of work that I'm often doing with clients, and a lot of it focuses on uh, you know, helping a company think about how they tell their story in a way that has continuity. Mm-hmm. Um in a way that demonstrates shows rather than tells who they are. Uh, thinking about how individual, seventy-five percent of Peppercom's clients are B two B. So thinking about how the the experts in those companies are a part of the narrative. Again, Rhett speaking about the the sort of corporate bio versus uh, uh, um, the the ability to, as a human being, show that. Uh, you know, how do you not just say? We have, you know, we have experts on X, but rather let those experts prove their expertise through what they're publishing, what they're talking about, uh, through their social media presence, whatever it might be. Um, so we do a lot of that type of consulting. We also do a lot of work on you know, how do things like design thinking apply to communications. So how do we think about, from the audience's perspective rather than the companies, the experience they have in communicating with these companies, uh, as well as the digital footprint. We work with a lot of very conservative companies mm-hmm. uh, who don't, uh, you know, they don't advertise, they don't, mm-hmm. uh, they don't necessarily talk about when you get into very regulated spaces and financial services, professional services, etc. They hadn't in the past uh, done a lot of really proactive storytelling about who they are. Mm-hmm. but uh, are increasingly seeing the need to do so because what happens when uh, a potential client or a potential employee looks them up online and there's nothing there or what's there doesn't reflect who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that's, so that's a third of my work. Uh, I, I spent a third of my work on sort of writing, speaking, um, 
and being on some industry boards. Uh, a lot of my work lately has focused on subjects around ethics. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'd be happy to talk about uh, some of the stuff. I've, I've been, in fact, uh, just got back late last night from Washington, D.C. and uh, been meeting with the, the FTC and talking, I met up with a guy at the SEC, mm -hmm. um, you know, thinking about what what's the government thinking about and concerned with when it comes to marketing practice. Wow. How, how did that opportunity come about? Are they, are they a potential clients or? No, no. We actually, we do. We, well, one of our clients is, uh, is uh, a government regulator, FINRA. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, they're, I was meeting with them more uh, along the lines of, uh, to be frank, there are plenty of things that you see people do in the marketing, advertising, communications space that gives me pause. So, uh, you know, part of what we wanted to focus on is for those who are in this space and who are concerned about uh, marketing practice that is uh, responsible to the audience and doesn't just reflect what the, what the uh, client would like to do. Uh, you know, it's, it, I find great value in talking with regulators about what they're seeing, the things they're concerned about, uh, and, uh, you know, how we make sure... Uh, those companies and agencies who are trying to uh, to, to be good actors, um, mm -hmm. how, how are we making sure that we're diligent about uh, not inadvertently doing things that aren't transparent or that, you know, not, not accidentally uh, with an unintended consequence compromise the privacy or uh, uh, of, of our uh, customers or whatever the case might be. So there's a lot of conversations like that. But then, they, then I still get a third of my time to do academic work. So uh, I can also talk about some of the stuff I've been working on on the academic side uh, coming up. Mm. This is like all very, very fascinating. And especially when you brought up regulation, that's an area I feel like it's, it's related to user experience. But obviously, it has taken UX onto uh, even a different level. Um, yeah. You know, it's not just like, is user having a good time? Is this experience intuitive? But are they really, truly benefiting from the experience? Um, and kind of reverse that. Are we taking advantage of them in, in right. inappropriate ways? Are we manipulating them? Are we doing things, and even this is the problem, again, unintended consequences, sometimes without thinking through what we're doing, mm -hmm. might, might we be causing unintended harm mm -hmm. um, without because we haven't thought through the security uh, or the data privacy, or the transparency of some of the things that we're doing. And I think a lot of times marketers get locked in their tunnel vision. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and of course, if they were able to take a step back, they say, wait a minute, you know, th this would be kind of troubling. I wouldn't want a company doing this to me, mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't think about that. Uh, but, but that requires thinking in a way that we often don't. Yeah, I'm going to turn that question around to say, what made you start thinking about things like yeah. this? Yeah, certainly. Well, I, I appreciate that. I'll, I'll be thinking about what I'll say when you do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, in terms of your work, you know, the question I, I posed to you just now actually is very fascinating to me, is how did you find a path in leveraging your experience in academia and creative writing and in consulting? How did all that come together for you to focus on bigger issues like the ones you just mentioned? What would trigger that? Well, you know, probably wasn't just an event, but rather a, a process. What was that process like for you? 
Yeah, I think a process is a good way to uh, uh, to put it. A lot of times we can, we look at where we where we are currently and construct a narrative that makes it seem you know totally logical mm. that you ended up at the point that you that you are. When of course at almost every step along the way you don't quite know you didn't quite know where you were headed next. Um, I've been very interested uh, from the beginning uh, of of my uh, writing and. And you know my, my background is in journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was uh, I worked uh, from from an academic perspective in studying pop culture and entertainment, and continue to to do so. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the work that I'm doing now in the marketing space is really focused on um, the relationship between the communicator and and their audience, and and thinking about uh, how that relationship uh, is has always really been a participatory one but uh, how in the in the current media environment we live in there's a lot of there's a lot of great potential uh, in terms of helping those who are creating uh, stories who are creating as they like to say in the the PR space thought leadership mm-hmm. um, how how they think about the, the experience of the audience that they're trying to reach and and uh, be able to put themselves in the shoes of that audience, and I think there's uh, uh, there's a lot to that. That's how interpersonal communication works. Um, yeah, uh, for professional communicators of all sorts, whether they be journalists or uh, television writers or marketers, have have been trained over the course of the last several decades in this sort of mass media culture mm-hmm. to think in a very much a sort of one-to-many mindset that, that turns the audience into a statistic or a rating or a, a, a conversion number or some analytics mm-hmm. or a profile uh, in a way that strips them of their humanity. Uh, and I'm, I'm very interested in you know, how we get back to that concept of even if it's mediated and it isn't face-to-face, how we think about uh, storytelling, quote unquote, content creation as a relationship, uh, and, and a, you know, an engaged and participatory relationship between uh, the person telling the story, the person creating the content, and, and the audience that they're uh, that they're hoping to reach with that content, or the audiences they're not trying to reach but who engage with it. Mm, interesting. What are some of the, you know, obviously. This is this question may appear come across a little ad hoc, um, but what are some of the brands or some of the the case studies you've come across that sort of impressed you in a way? Um, and I'm asking this question because a lot of the times, you know, as I'm learning through talking to people, to brands, clients, users, it is really hard at times, if not impossible, to predict how a piece of content is going to perform, and. There are a lot of unpredictable elements, and so what is, in your opinion, sort of the secret ingredients to making a piece of content successful or surprising or engaging? Well, I'll answer the, the latter part of the question first in terms of that secret ingredient or formula. Mm-hmm. Um, a fellow Kentuckian, Jason Falls, likes <laughs> to say, put it past the holy smokes test. and. <laughs> Uh, he doesn't use the word holy smokes depending on which company he's with, but that's his more safe for work version. Um, and you know, his point is if you write something, produce something, uh, post it on social media, and you don't yourself 
think it would make somebody say, holy smokes, I didn't know that, or holy smokes, that's an interesting way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, then why did you spend all of the energy posting it in the first place? What's the point mm-hmm. if it's not going to surprise, delight, entertain, challenge, mm-hmm. ca- call to action, potentially do something for the audience and not just you? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think that's really the secret ingredient. It's, it's very straightforward uh, mm-hmm. that if we're able to understand our audience, listen to them to the point that we know what they care about, that anybody, whether they be in advertising or public relations, ought to see themselves not just as the, uh, the company's messenger, uh, but as a as a an ombudsman or a, a representative of the audience back to the company mm. uh, and an advocate for for the audience. If you know if the company if a company's executives wants to talk about X and Y, but the audience is really concerned about Z, then it's the job of the marketing communications function to 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 push the the company in that direction uh, mm-hmm. often. And uh, you know and, and I think I admire within a lot of different organizations who are trying to, to make that happen. I don't think any company does this perfectly uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but I think you can certainly see uh, a lot of organizations that are trying to push themselves in that direction, whether it be, and there's a lot of different ways to, to do that. You know, In some cases, you have companies dedicating themselves to why not put our marketing budget toward creating the sort of thought leadership that people would care about? So Adobe, you know, publishes CMO.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, that's that's interesting because it's very clear that Adobe publishes. It's not overtly commercial, mm-hmm. uh, but it you know it very much establishes for uh, people in the marketing function that uh, you know that Adobe has real investment in and focus on uh, thought leadership. I like to look at analyst houses like up in your neck of the woods, Forrester, mm-hmm. right? You know, when, when they have an expert on, for instance, uh, 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 the customer experience, uh, that person is uh, out there publishing content, participating in conversations, commenting on stories, tweeting, doing webcasts, speaking at, at conferences, writing books on that subject. So the marketing comes largely through providing valuable information and insights on a regular basis. Mm. Um, you know, of course, they do much more customized solutions for the clients that they work with, but you don't have to convince me that the, that, that expert on customer experience, uh, that Carrie at Forrester is an expert because I've seen it. Mm. Uh, and, and I think uh, whether you're a consumer brand or uh, you are a, a professional services provider, that sort of mentality, I think, is uh, uh, sends companies in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely agree. And you know what's interesting is you kind of just helped me dissect <laughs> the strategy and the approach when we worked for one of the clients without naming them specifically. You know, they were looking for thought leadership. And that, you know, about a year, year and a half ago, that was the first time for me to hear about CXM, I think, customer um, experience management. And it's really fascinating because not only the we're searching for influencers for this particular client, and the influencers didn't just come from one place, where they didn't just come from one category. Instead, there are influencers not at all affiliated with the company, 
But then at the same time, they have internal influencers within the company as well as people who are technical,、um, you know, who may have contributed to a management system that they were building. So it's really, it feels like a hodgepodge. But now with your explanation, you know, when everything comes together, you have the insider version, and you also have the the、uh, outsider's point of view. It's really fascinating. Well, I have become really、uh, focused on that through, you know, throughout the last, I guess, seven years or so that I've really been working more closely in the consulting world and, and thinking about those internal communications processes that ultimately deeply affect how a company communicates externally.、Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times when we talk about internal communications. It makes it sound like we're talking about how a company communicates to its employees, but I'm interested in these internal processes that are about external.、Mm. And you know, one of the things that's challenging is that in the average company, each division thinks about, talks about the audience in really different ways. So, from a customer service perspective, it's traditionally measured by call volume and how many calls you can get through in an hour.、Um, When you're talking in in、uh, in in the sense of public relations, it's、uh, it's you know circulation and readers, and,、um, and when you're talking, of course, in in, in TV advertising, you're talking in Nielsen ratings and and other patterns like that. On the web, you're talking analytics, and in sales, you're talking conversions,、mm-hmm. and you're all ultimately talking about the same audience that you're trying to reach.、Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very hard for Different branches of the company to come together and talk comprehensively about this customer.、Um, on the other hand,、uh, it, one thing that they all have in common is every part of the company is or ought to be ultimately focused on those end audiences that they're trying to reach. And and if that's the case, then one common point everybody internally could get around is if they could be able to put themselves in the shoes of that audience they're trying to reach. So I think there's a lot of ways that that sort of Mentality from customer experience as a subject、uh, can help transform how companies work together internally. Now, I'll give you an example, and this is this comes from my academic work,、mm-hmm. uh, but it's become one of my favorite anecdotes when I'm talking to people in the business setting.、Uh, there's a there's a soap opera. Well, he was a soap opera writer, and and then went on to write for World Wrestling Entertainment. But a guy named Tom Cassiello. He's won some Emmys. Really sharp guy. Um, and and Tom wrote a piece for a book that I co-edited called "The Survival of Soap Opera."、Mm-hmm. And、uh, Tom describes he had grown up a soap opera fan, and then went to work in the soap opera industry,、uh, and and worked as a writer for a lot of different U.S. soap operas、uh, until the writer strike hit. I guess it was in 2008 or so,、um, and when the writer strike hit. He could no longer, you know, he was on the sidelines. He wasn't writing, but the soap operas brought in、uh, temporary writers、uh, who weren't with the writers' guild and kept on going. So here he is, sitting at home, watching the show he writes for continue on without him. And he started、uh, getting really active in in blogging about and uh, talking about um, the soap operas. Uh, he, in, in essence, he became a fan again. 
Mm-hmm. And in the process, he said he started to realize something that in the in that time period, since he had quit becoming a fan, quit being a fan, and had become a soap opera writer, in the writers' room they talked about the fans every day. They were obsessed with their audience. Mm-hmm. But what they talked about were Nielsen ratings and you know, demographic profiles. And he realized that he had, in the process of being obsessed with the audience, had lost touch of who the audience actually was as real human beings and being able to think, oh, wait a minute, this show is a relationship between us and our fans. And when I write X, the fan may respond with Y, and the average viewer, the average fan of the show is going to think Z. And, and he, he realized really why the fans often got frustrated with the writers in a way that he said, when the strike ended and he came back to work, he felt like he was an infinitely better writer because of all that time he had spent sort of looking at his world again from the fans' point of view. And I think that's what companies have to challenge themselves to do, is they, they spend very little time looking at themselves from their audience's shoes mm-hmm. and to their detriment. And I absolutely agree. And I think that's related to this this fantastic job title you have is director of audience engagement. And, you know, last night I was trying to study it and, and it really speaks for itself. And what are, what I was wondering is in terms of the disconnect between brands and their audiences, what are some of the ways that you've come across? And I think what's really fascinating is you're at a crossroad of academia and consulting, we're dealing with brands and corporations that has benefited your vision, your knowledge tremendously. So what are some of the things, applications that you have practiced in the past or currently, you know, bridge that gap more or less? Yeah, I mean, there, there are several. I, I appreciate your saying that about the, the job title. I have done mm-hmm. the same basic thing the whole time I've been at Peppercom, but it took us a long time to figure out what to call it. <laughs> I know what that. <laughs> you know, I think it's funny because I have had you know, this is my third title with the same company, and people are like, "Well, where did you start with the company, and what are you doing now?" It's sort of like, well, it isn't that. We just they had no idea what to call it, and I didn't have any idea how to translate it. <laughs> but I'm pretty happy with with where we've netted out for for now, unless we come up with something even better later. But but yeah, to, to, <laughs> yeah back to your question. Uh, you know, I think that uh, you know, one of the one of the things I'll give you some examples in terms of projects. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our client was a big professional services firm, and they were trying to figure out how they could do a better job from a recruitment standpoint with the way they use social media. That was the problem that they came to us with, and where we and it was interesting because they had. Uh, a they had a Facebook page that had been written up several times. It may have even won an award or two. From a recruitment perspective, was in their field uh, pretty highly respected. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, but they felt like, hey, maybe we should be doing more. What should we think about? So what we said to them is, uh, well, it's going to be hard for us to just abstractly answer that question. What if we went to uh, you know, give us a list of the schools that you care the most about, the schools that you're targeting. Mm-hmm. And what if we found some some college seniors who are in the midst of their job hunt in your field right now and just followed them through 
their process of looking for, researching, thinking about where they want to work upon graduation. So we did that, and they kept diaries, and we interviewed them throughout their, their job search. And one of the things we found for those who were considering this particular company, um, that Facebook page, almost none of them ended up on. Um, mm. When they did end up on it, it was at the very end of their process, which kind of makes sense. They narrowed their choice down to deciding, hey, I might really like to work for this company. Mm -hmm. And they went onto the Facebook page and they asked questions like, do you currently have any job openings in your uh, Madison, Madison, Wisconsin office or whatever mm -hmm. the case might be. And, and it was a great experience when they got to that point. But one of the things we came back to them and we said, we said you've done a very good job of helping address the audience who has already figured out that they want to work for you or they're very interested and who have some really specific questions mm -hmm. at the very end of their job search. But that is, of course, when you look at the journey of the recruit, that is, you know, that's, that's kind of the, you're helping, at the, you're, you're jumping in at the 95% of the way on the journey. Yeah, you lost the, the majority of the population. You really want to be part of the decision-making process, right? Yeah, so, mm -hmm. so we said to them, from this point forward, you know, you have to think about how to, and of course, it's not like offline, for instance, they were doing plenty of things already. I mean, they had a presence on these campuses. I'm not, not trying to say they hadn't done anything in that funnel, but when it came to, from, a, from an online perspective, they hadn't really thought about uh, how to communicate with people, provide more thought leadership, do things that would reach people, provide advice to them earlier in the journey. And so that became then one of their, one of their focuses moving forward. So, you know, uh, uh, to give a very different example, we were working with a client who was in uh, the automotive space. And uh, they had, had found that they had one branch of competitors but as their product lines changed and as, their, as other uh, automotive uh, product lines changed, they were starting to find themselves competing with a whole different group of competitors than they had before. And so one of the things we help them do is look at for somebody who is trying to choose against you and, you know, uh, to, you know to, against your car and, and car A and B, Let's look at the experience of shopping for and researching and thinking about a car. But if they're looking at you and cars C and D, then let's go through that experience and see how it differs. And, and uh, uh, you know, one of the things they realized is they, that they had designed themselves in a way to compete really well and differentiate themselves completely from their traditional competitors. But from an experience standpoint, when you looked at, at, at some of the, the new spaces that they were finding themselves in, they had their messaging, the way they were talking about themselves, etc., hadn't necessarily uh, uh, positioned them to uh, to compete uh, with some of those other groups. So you know, it, it's really often you know, things like that. Uh, mm. Very seems very logical when you when you walk through it. But how do you help a company uh, approach it in that direction? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I you know, Sam, one of the things I was looking through. You know, you've written two books already, and a lot of the things you, you have explained and just the way you approach them clearly indicates that we, we often say analytical, uh, you know, problem solving, but what do they mean exactly? I think you've really planned out that path and kind of give people an idea of what a thinking process is. 
So I, I always ask a career-related question because many of my audience that I've interviewed on the Face World podcast have very intriguing titles, very interesting titles. And without seeing your face, which I'm going to ask a photo of you, people will not even realize hearing your voice or realize you're you're a young guy, you know. And <laughs> I just had a birthday. I just turned 32. Oh my goodness! You when was your birthday? Was, uh, let's see, what is today? We're recording this. It was one week ago. Wow, you're only 32 years old, and we are now talking minute 32. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's incredible. Um, and I want to pose a question, and the answers sometimes very different. Sometimes it's the same from people. Is if for a kid still in school or fresh out of school, want to consider your career path. I know you're going to laugh because your title changed three times, but regardless of the title, the type of things you're, you're doing, the problems you're helping brand solving, and, and what do you think really equipped you to, to have gone to where you are today, whether that's you know, academic-related or family-related, what has conditioned you to do what you do today? Well, one, of, one of the things I've tried to always pay attention to uh, is to think through why I'm interested in what I'm interested in. Mm. Yeah, so early on, I, I uh, started off, in fact, in, in junior high school uh, doing some, some writing for uh, my local newspaper, which, uh, which we can, <laughs> we no can discuss separately. That's a whole <laughs> other subject. But, but I had... Uh, yeah, it was a small town newspaper, and then that's what took me to college. Uh, I'm a first generation college student. Wow! Uh, and I, throughout school and throughout those extracurricular activities, I loved writing. I loved telling stories. I loved uh, kind of communicating with the community, and the natural way for me to turn that into uh, a, a job was was journalism school. Uh, but this was the early 2000s, and there was a lot of questions uh, about the future of journalism by the time I got to J school. And uh, you know, this is the first time I heard people really talking about this idea of convergence in the media. How do we make sense of the fact that you know newspapers are publishing their stories online and including video and broad you know broadcast news now have websites where they're publishing print stories and. Uh, how do we make sense of, of multimedia journalism? How do you, and, and all of that, and at the same time, journalists laying everybody off because they couldn't figure out what to do with things like Craigslist and, <laughs> and uh, you know, all these online publications that were cropping up. And, and I instead instead of going down the path of being a journalist, I did work as a journalist for uh, for for a few years while I was in uh, school and while I was in grad school, but I, I really got interested in those those questions, which is, well, that's a you know, fundamental shift in the media industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started thinking about it in relation to the things I myself was a fan of. You know, I cared about journalism because I was a, an active reader and cared about the news. I've, but I was also a fan of things like professional wrestling and soap operas, which I'd grown up a fan of. And mm-hmm. I started to think, why am I a fan of these things? What intrigues me about them? What are the commonalities that draw me to them? And it was very much this sort of immersive relationship that you develop with the story world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the case of pro wrestling and soaps, uh, these are worlds that people 
you know, it's not a, a, a short-run series that only has 10 episodes a season for a few seasons. These are shows that, that air, you know, in many cases, five, five hours a week without end. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, there was something that had always intrigued me about getting to know that world so deeply and following it so, so thoroughly and finding other fans who are sort of immersed in the same, the same story world. Mm-hmm. And so for me, uh, it's hard to separate that discussion of the storytelling from the discussion of the relationship uh, that the fans have with one another and the relationship between the fans and the creator. Mm-hmm. Um, I was not at all interested in marketing or communication. <laughs> um, I mean, I wasn't uninterested, but, but I ended up, when I, when I came to MIT to go to grad school, uh, that was the program that made a lot of sense for me because it was the, the comparative media studies program was looking specifically at this moment of media in transition, how we make sense of, of the media world uh, and the rise of, of quote-unquote you know, digital communications and new ways of, of, of circulating uh, uh, media content. And it was 2005 when I moved to Boston to go to grad school, so this was shortly after Facebook had started, well before Twitter, mm-hmm. in the earlier days of the blogosphere, mm-hmm. and people were trying to figure out how to make sense of uh, these you know, these new pathways people were taking and new ways that, co- that content was traveling. Um, so, for, so for me, um, a lot of those, those questions really sort of took root, uh, and as I started talking to you know, marketing companies were trying to figure this out, but realizing that the answer didn't come from the traditional marketing space. So they started coming to us, and I got really intrigued by the fact that, you know, wait a minute, here you are. One of our partners was Fidelity Investments in this research consortium mm-hmm. that we ran at MIT. And it was fascinating. You know, we had launched this mainly as a being about entertainment brands, and I thought suddenly, and here's Fidelity Investments knocking on our door wanting to talk about some of these same questions mm. of, of audience engagement and storytelling and relationships and participation. And I think like, well, that's interesting to me because here's, you know, here's a set of problems that uh, come from a totally different space, but they're really talking about some of the same core questions and issues I care about. And uh, today I find myself in the, uh, you know, in, the, in the consulting branch of what I do, working mm. with companies from you know everything from uh, uh, professional services and accounting to architecture uh, to uh, you know, asset management to uh, I, I spoke at the annual insurance executives conference a few years ago. I nice. spoke social media for utilities. Wow. Um, you know these are just these aren't worlds that I come from. Uh, I spoke at a travel industry conference not that long ago, and I love these opportunities because here are people who are immersed in, mm. in their field, mm. and they're, they're struggling with issues that I'm thinking about too, uh, but I'm thinking about it from a, from a way outside their world, and equally so, I learned so much to start thinking about how the things I think about translate to the specifics of their world. If you run a tourism attraction, you know, your perspective of questions about audience engagement are very heavily shaped about, you know, around the actual in-person experience of, of having people come to your place. And, and, and that's a very different question for me than when you get into, you know, a financial services company who 
have all sorts of government oversight and regulations that they're trying to follow to make sure that in the prospect of trying to quote unquote do their thought leadership, mm -hmm. uh, they're not uh, accidentally running afoul of, of uh, you know of, of regulatory constraints that are on them. So uh, yeah, I, I, and I end up learning so much from that. So I think my advice took a long way to get back around to this, but my advice to people. Uh, who are, are trying to think about their future career path is rather than pick a predestined path and follow it, there's nothing wrong with that, that's one direction. Mm -hmm. Another is to, to kind of naturally follow a progression of where your, where your career leads you while staying true uh, to, to the things that you really want to focus on, which is you know, what I feel like I've done. Um, and it intrigues me when somebody comes up to me and wants to talk about something that, again, deals with the issues I care about, but tackles them from such a different worldview than the way I'm thinking about them. Mm. Yeah, definitely. No, I, I love this answer. And what's also intriguing is a lot of things you've explained, I think, are really rooted in the, the concepts and sort of the progression of your book, Spreadable Media, um, you know, I haven't read the entire book just yet and has fantastic reviews on Amazon and has a dedicated web page. A lot of what you're speaking to it kind of encapsulated in, in such a book, and I highly recommend my audience to, to read. Um, so, you know, the, the funny thing is we are introduced by Josh Green, who is a co-author on the Spreadable Media book as well. So... You know, I, but I would love to hear your point of view, possibly same, a little bit different than how Josh Green sees the creation of the book itself. Do you mind giving us like, like a little snippet on that? <laughs> oh, a a absolutely. I'd, I'd be happy to. So, um, I, as I mentioned, I uh, did my uh, master's uh, research at, uh, at MIT at this program, Comparative Media Studies. And when I arrived, um, there, there was uh, a lot of focus on potentially creating a new research project that came to be known as the Convergence Culture Consortium, uh, so named after a book that, uh, that the, uh, the co-director of the program, Henry Jenkins, who's Josh and I's co-author on, uh, Josh and my co-author on Spreadable Media, um, he had a, the, the, a book that he was working on called Convergence. Culture. So, uh, when I arrived, uh, the uh, this research group was just getting off the ground, and, and particularly so because here is this humanities program at MIT that uh, that various uh, media, entertainment, and marketing audiences were starting to come to because of a lot of Henry's publications on things like transmedia storytelling and uh, fan engagement. Um, they were starting to come to this program to want to speak or want to meet the students or uh, in some way participate. And Henry thought, well, you know, this could be a, a great moment for academia to intervene and have some sort of dialogue with the industry more than just a one-off come speak to our students mm -hmm. um, or come to a conference. And so we, we created this consortium, and it was focused on how do we share the research, the things we're working on from a media studies perspective with, with companies in marketing and the media and entertainment, 
and get their feedback and see how it res the things we're researching resonates with what they're struggling with in their their day to day work. And uh, a lot of that early work was really focused on the idea uh, that everybody could become uh, a content producer. And it's true. <laughs> yeah. And we were really fascinated by that. So we mm -hmm. were, um, you know, we, we published, I think, 2006, which was uh, the year that, uh, uh, if, I'm, if I've got my timeline correct, that's, that's the year that Josh uh, moved up and joined us. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a group of grad students and a, uh, a recent graduate who ran this until uh, we were able to get Josh uh, to, to join us and help uh, become, he became the research manager mm. for our group. Uh, and, uh, uh, and at that point, that 2006 was the year that Time Magazine said, you are the person of the year. And so there was all this focus on, well, what happens in a world when anybody can publish their opinion, anybody can become a creator, anybody can gain an audience? And mm. I think we were really focused on that question perhaps too focused on that question mm. because eventually we started to think about the fact more and more that not everybody considered themselves a producer mm -hmm. and I fear that in writing about uh, you know fans who created their own YouTube channels and who uh, you know worked on these extensive fictional projects and other things we we prioritize certain types of audience engagement and activity over others uh, because, you know, in actuality, most people don't consider themselves um, media producers and don't necessarily strive to be. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yet they are putting significant labor and activity and creativity into how they discuss, debate, critique, and just share the stuff that they're, they're working on. And so we, we really started to think about that. This was around the time people were using, starting, you know, really using metaphors like going viral mm -hmm. to talk about how things spread. And we were unhappy with, and the book starts off, and the title comes from kind of being cranky about uh, the use of that, that, that phrase, going viral, um, because it, it supposes that this activity of sharing of circulating material uh, is an uncreative or almost an act without human agency, right? Mm -hmm. Viral indicates that uh, I didn't even try to pass that along. I and my daughter has recently had the flu. She caught it from <laughs> school from somebody who I'm sure didn't intend to give it to her. Um, that's not how culture works. That's how a virus works. And mm -hmm. and. Uh, uh, so we started to think about how do we give more critical attention to that everyday act of sharing, critiquing, talking about, passing along media texts. Um, and and uh, just because that's more mundane than, than uh, the act of sort of production and creation um, in a lot of people's eyes doesn't mean it's less significant. In fact, mm -hmm. I think you could argue uh, the ways in which the audience has changed the path of circulation for a media text may be more fundamental a change. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. You know, one of the questions I, I was going to jump in and, and uh, I kept thinking about it as you're describing the process is uh, what is your point of view or um, your opinion on, you know, information sharing versus uh, content creation? Um, you know, it seems like it's not less significant. Um, what is... Well, and, and this is the thing. So, 
uh, we draw too 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 uh, uh, too great a line between those things because mm-hmm. what is a media text and what is an act of creation? Uh, you know, what does create meaning and value, which is the sub the subtitle of our book? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of these acts of sharing, of critiquing, of discussing, of passing along, mm-hmm. are profoundly creative acts and. Um, you know, they give people a great deal of pleasure, and they uh, drive a lot of people's engagement in and around media texts. Uh, when you know, I often like to say this happens to me on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. When I first, I most often these days discover what I read, watch, and listen to through other people. I mean, that's not mm. that's not news. Most of us are doing that more and more mm-hmm. these days. But more often than not, when I first discover a new piece of content, it has less to do initially with that text than it does with the person who shared it. Because Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, why did they pass that along to me? Why are they posting about this? Mm -hmm. Uh, And and so a lot of the relationship I initially have with that media text has to do with my relationship with the person I discovered it through. And the way they post about it, the context they put around it, the that they have of it, who mm-hmm. they choose to share it with. That is a very; those are very conscious acts. They may not be significant in terms of people, you know, don't think of them as like this is a monumental decision I'm about to make. Tag in this Facebook post about this funny Onion article that I read. But yet, uh, you know, those are um, sort of everyday creative acts that that, that many of us are uh, that are engaged in, and uh, and. And I think we have to give significant attention to those and not treat those as somehow uh, less important than. The, the examples of Stack Overflow and Quora just come up over and over again on my podcast. And clearly something Josh Josh and I talked about a lot um, and, and on, off, on and off the podcast. And the reason is, you know, on Quora and Stack Overflow and Pluralsight, I mean, all these amazing companies are letting people to not just pose questions, but also meaningful questions, and they're categorized and tagged in such a way that's easy, not only easy for people to respond to, but kind of draw conclusions and connections among them. And, you know, and then people, obviously people are responding to the questions, are content contributors. It's just fascinating. And I, you know, what's funny was last night I was watching a, I was watching, listening to Charlie Rose interviewing Chris Rock. And and uh, when you brought an example of like a lot of the content really is about the person who's sharing it. So, for instance, if somebody, um, people said you go to a grocery store and you look at healthy people and um, he's like, what are, what are you eating? What are you buying? And, you know, you start to, whether they're really doing the right thing or not. I mean, I honestly argue sometimes my... Some of my friends who may be very physically fit, but when I start listening to them about dietary information, it's like, you're actually not entirely right about this. But that just kind of comes around. One of the things that really cracked me up last night was, um, you know, Chris Rock basically said that men get their opinions about fashion from their guy friends who who gets laid the most. I I thought it was so interesting because literally Chris said, I'll look at the shoes that he's wearing. He's like, oh, you know, and, you know, all the girls go crazy for him. Maybe those are the right shoes to get. And that's the right brand to, to buy from. And 
you know, just somehow that kind of just echo that information is all these patterns and path people choose to, to follow. Yeah, you were talking, as you were talking about Quora uh, and some, some other platforms, you know, one of the things that fascinates me too is to look at sort of the oldest of old school. There's a, there's a, an academic, I think he's currently at, uh, he just graduated from the P, a PhD program at USC Annenberg, and I believe he's up in your neck of the woods now in the Boston area mm-hmm. at the, the Microsoft New England uh, mm-hmm. research group, Microsoft Nerd, and uh, a guy named Kevin Driscoll. And he's one of the areas Kevin has been really fascinated with is message boards, mm-hmm. like old school forms, <laughs> uh, un, unsexy old school forms and message boards mm-hmm. where there's still such often such intense creativity and discussion and debate and, and postings. One of the one of the sites that I've been really fascinated with, have you ever come across a site called Topics? T O P I X? Oh yes, yes, I have. It is a, a fascinating look of, uh, at a lot of these questions that we talk about when it comes to spreadability and discussion and creativity. Mm-hmm. Often in Disgusting and disturbing and challenging ways, right? Uh, so topics.com allows people to anonymously post about any subject on which they have a common viewpoint. And how that uh, reflects is that people create bo- message boards mm. for every small town and big city across the country. So uh, the, the town that I'm from, uh, the county that I'm from, is uh, uh, in Kentucky, a rural county, and there's a message board uh, there uh, on topics uh, focused on uh, my county, or uh, Beaver Dam, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, you know, post after post of just these fascinating questions, these, pa- these fascinating topics. So, you know, one example, there was a whole message board of, of a group of people who live in Section 8 housing. Mm-hmm. who are getting together and using that forum to start to post and talk about poor living conditions in their building. And because they were posting anonymously and organizing anonymously, they didn't. Uh, they were able to sort of get together and get their list of grievances together without fear of repercussion mm-hmm. uh, in a public setting to talk about uh, kind of the, the sort of basic health violations that were happening in the, the building they were living in. You know, two threads down, there was a there was a post that was and apologies for this in advance. Oh please. Uh, there was a there was a who is the girl with big tits that works at the Denny's? <laughs> oh, I know. I go in there to eat just to look at her, and then somebody comes on and says, "That's my sister, and she's 17 years old." Oh, no. You all are disgusting human beings, and the fight breaks out, and then. Then at the same time period, there was a whole thread. There was an unsolved murder in Ohio County, Kentucky from 1993. Wow. People took the topics to say, we never solved this murder, but I think half the people in this town know who did it. Wow. And they started uh, organizing information about who they thought did it and all the evidence they had. And the police were able to use that as a, uh, uh, as a lead mm-hmm. and solved the murder and ended up uh, arresting the guy. Um, but that's terrifying because, of course, we saw the same sorts of activities happen in places like Reddit around the Boston Marathon bombings where mm-hmm. people were sleuthing and picking out the person who didn't do it. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. We all fancy ourselves to be a CSI investigator on the <laughs> idea of being able to bring together our collective intelligence has potentially 
horrifying repercussions too. There's a, there's an academic named uh, a couple of academics, uh, one named Whitney Phillips who contributed to our spreadable media project. A woman named Kate Miltner, who uh, was at that Microsoft group for a while, and now she did the opposite of Kevin Driscoll. She left the Microsoft Research Group to join the PhD program at USC Annenberg. Mm -hmm. um, but they, they do a lot of research on things like public shaming and hive mentality and groups like 4chan, mm -hmm. um, where you, you, know, uh, you have these sorts of the new ways that technologies facilitate us to communicate allow us to share and hold on to one another's work and, and do really interesting things, but sometimes things that are, that are dark and disturbing. <laughs> and then to, you know, for people like us, I think we very much find that uh, to be very, very interesting. And, you know, sometimes I wonder, the reason for Quora, again, to receive such high quality is because I feel like there's a clear guideline, they're really policing the the quality of the content and people vote um, up and down based on the quality of the contributor. So th that's really interesting. Like there's if there's a facilitation or moderation process, would that result or yields in, in higher quality, or could it could that person just be in charge of steering the content one way or the other? You know, I'm looking at topics right now. I had I had to pull it up, and really is very free form. Not to mention, it's, you know, it's geo-targeted, knows where I am, and then just pinpoints me to the topics that people in my area are interested in talking about. And I can see myself start dropping, you know, that sort of Google Map, uh, Google Map marker to other parts of the world or even within the U.S. I want to, like, pull up two tabs and see what people in your town are talking about versus what people in Boston are talking about. Absolutely, absolutely. Everything's a trade-off, so... Mm -hmm. The more quality control and, and sort of you know uh, safeguards and checks and uh, that you put in place, there are things you lose in the process. There are things that you potentially gain in mm -hmm. the process also, and, and that that trade-off fascinates me because you know in the example I just gave with topics, mm -hmm. we see we see places where uh, the ability to post anonymously was uh, I think you know from my perspective unequivocally a good thing with the Section Eight housing. Mm -hmm. Unequivocally, a bad thing um, <laughs> to the you know these disgusting misogynist sort of uh, rants that you might find somebody go on, and then uh, ambivalently, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, family of the person who had uh, had uh, a relative be murdered and no one brought to justice. Mm -hmm. um, that you know that was a very good outcome, but it's a potentially terrifying outcome. Love I mean, that example. It was so juicy. Involved <laughs> discussion around the the show serial, right? Mm -hmm. uh, from a journalist of ethics standpoint, there's a lot of great questions. What do you think of that show? By the way, I had to listen to it because it was popular. But I, to be honest, I have very mixed feelings towards well, it. it. Coming from a journalism background, it raises the question. Of course, number one, um, why? On the one hand, it brought people's attention to some very real and concerning issues, and it, it did sort of documentary storytelling mm -hmm. uh, through the lens of, of sort of fictional serialized engagement mm -hmm. uh, in a way. Um, it, it copied the style of, of what I would expect in some ways from a, you know, from a fictional series in a way that engaged people in an issue that they weren't engaged in otherwise. So mm -hmm. in that way, you're looking at... Uh, uh, you know, a, a great potential benefit in terms of uh, from a social issues perspective. Coming up from a journalism background, what does it mean when somebody's going through the act of investigative journalism mm 
mm-hmm. or reporting on what they're working on while they're in the midst of working on it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it seems like that affects the outcome greatly. Exactly. Uh, when you're reporting on your investigation while you're still actively investigating. And then there are a lot of questions of what happens when you're turning private people into public figures mm-hmm. in ways that they didn't necessarily sign up for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and how do we, you know, what are the ethics around uh, that sort of that sort of process? Because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, this is uh, the only reason some of these questions, some of these people became so timely, is, you know, and, and found themselves in the public eye is because Serial decided to shine a light on this this old issue, and in what ways do people have a right to, to not be put in that position and not have their line of privacy uh, violated in a world where, go back to topics.com, in a small town, mm-hmm. you could argue that everybody's a public figure. Mm. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, this idea we traditionally have had of public figures versus private figures, mm-hmm. who isn't a celebrity in a high school, right? I mean, everybody is sort of a known entity. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about in the realm of one small micro community, and and so those questions of public versus private and what people's rights are are murky. Yeah, especially if they're victims and you know they're no longer living, even they in this case or their families. How can they represent them th- themselves properly? Where if they don't want to be involved, you know, which is, what is the justification for all of that? It's yeah, that's a. That's interesting. So I got to ask this question based on, you know, how, you know, how I reach out to you and how then later, two weeks later, after I connected with you, I somehow unintentionally discover the book Spreadable Media was among the, you know, top, if I remember correctly, top 10 uh, recommended books in summer 2013. And then there was, you know, because I work in marketing, social media, there was a website recommending the seven most valuable books on you know social media and spreadable media it was just like really on the top of the list and just knowing how many books are out there and as a result how many people are kind of turn away from spending three four years working on a book it's really an impressive accomplishment it's very significant um so congratulations for sure but i gotta pose a question on you is because you're in the frontier or like the pioneer and just so in tune with the the culture or culture and society what do you think might be coming up next in terms of trends in terms of potential user behavior like i have a theory but i'm gonna hold myself back what do you think it's coming up next you know beyond Facebook, Twitter, and, you know, Quora, and all these things. Yeah, it, it's interesting to, to, to me because, of course, being in a consulting space, mm-hmm. clients are, are trying to figure that out <laughs> all the time. And, and one of the things I remind people, I'm going to go a little bit of a different direction with this, mm-hmm. with this question, is, you know, very little is next in terms of what people at the, you know, ultimately are interested in. Mm-hmm. All the things we're seeing people do on the platforms you just mentioned are things that people have always done or have long done, mm-hmm. and we're just we're seeing new ways for people to organize around doing it. Um, so in that sense, I think there is uh, it's just something important to keep in mind that that you know the behaviors that we see. Uh, people bring on to new platforms are often enabling the way people have long wanted to connect and 
apply their creativity and things that they were doing that had less visibility mm -hmm. uh, in a previous era, but the things were, that people you know were doing. Um, and, and, and so for me, um, one of the things that fascinates me and continues to fascinate me is the, the higher and higher degree to which we follow people not for what they say, but for what they read, write, and listen to. Mm. Right, that that mm -hmm. and, and that that role. I mean, you, you know, you talk about the idea of influence, and we often think about influence in terms of who is that blogger that people really want to read. Mm -hmm. Now, the people who who really I pay the most attention to are often, in some cases, people who don't ever publish anything themselves. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, the, the people who who have a lot of uh, sway for me are those people who. Um, really share and become a filter for uh, smart thinking and smart stuff. And, and I think uh, what I hope to see happen is people get tied up less and less with the strategies of a particular platform and focus more on those activities of, and ways of engaging that people care about. You know, I often encourage my client, you know, my clients don't, you know, don't have a Facebook strategy, don't have a LinkedIn publishing strategy. Mm -hmm. um, because that's the wrong way to think about it. You know, no, it's it's kind of silly to talk about someone as a LinkedIn user in any comprehensive way. Because of course they're a human being who happens to occasionally log into LinkedIn because they got a message or because they want to read something that one of their connections has posted mm -hmm. um, and see who just changed jobs or whatever. They mm -hmm. are also uh, engaging on you know five or six other platforms in interesting ways. So I think. Focusing more on the behaviors and the ways you want to engage is, is key. Uh, when it comes to what's next, a lot of my clients are in the B2B space, and one of the things I think about often is the way that people engaged initially, engage initially in their leisure time eventually becomes how they get more and more comfortable engaging in their professional lives. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 20 years ago, it was really strange to imagine commenting and talking back to what you read, write, and listen to, and today, uh, you know, business executives are doing that on a regular basis. Just a few years ago, the idea of uh, a lot of folks in financial services uh, being publicly visible and, and sharing snippets of their thinking seemed, seemed crazy or a waste of time or dangerous or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, potentially get you in trouble or, or all these other things, and yet that's become you know, increasingly sort of a standardized way of, of, of doing work. So I, I'm interested in seeing how uh, what is becoming everyday communication practice uh, eventually becomes codified in the way people um, participate as professionals mm -hmm. in their professional lives. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a, it's a real challenge in many cases because, uh, uh, because that brings with it a lot of, a lot of concerns. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if, if you think of... Uh, posting your opinion about something online or sharing an article online as representing your company, mm -hmm. uh, it leads a lot of companies to say, I don't want my people talking about their professional lives at all. The Labor Review Board increasingly is making decisions and giving opinions that indicate, hey, if people are going to spend half their <laughs> life at work, or at least you know more than half their waking hours at work in some people's cases, mm -hmm. um, it'd be crazy to think they can't talk about their professional life. I agree. Uh, you know, and, and it's a basic human, you know, at what point does it become a basic human right to be able to talk about work? On the other hand, you can understand a company's consternation 
mm-hmm. saying that these people are out here talking about work, they're not a spokesperson for our company. How do we balance that out, and how do we figure out common sense approaches to some of these questions? But I think that goes back to you know our initial topic of you know, what do users, users and people every day, whether they're interested in applying to the company or they simply want to learn more, do they rather hear from a representative, a spokesperson, or do they hear a real voice who truly cares about the company but yet want to tell you, kind of give you the insider version of what it's like? It gets back to showing rather than telling. You know, Peppercom Mm -hmm. uh, started off as a PR agency, so... Mm -hmm. Our core was things like media relations, pitching stories to journalists. And one of the things we increasingly say to people, you know, even that part of it is, is very much focused on the digital footprint of those, of those experts. If mm-hmm. I reach out, you know, it, it, well, and I don't do media pitching, but if somebody in my agency were, uh, who, who, who does media relations were reaching out to a journalist and say, you ought to talk to X, mm-hmm. she's an expert on Y, and you go to a search engine and type in X's name, mm-hmm. and nothing comes up when you search her name in relation to Y. You, as the journalist, are thinking, "Well, if she's such an expert on Y, mm-hmm. then you know, how come I don't see any evidence of that?" Don't tell me. You know, our neighbor, uh, living here in Kentucky, our neighbor's Missouri, the Show Me State. And <laughs> I think that's the mentality people increasingly have is, um, you know, rather than then market to me and tell me you care about X. Show me through the fact that you are posting and thinking and writing about X on a regular basis. And mm-hmm. I think from a corporate perspective, that's important for a company to do, to show it's invested in uh, what it's invested in. Um, you know, and, and, and it's hard to fake. I mean, that's the problem. Mm-hmm. A lot of companies come in and say, okay, we need a content marketing strategy. Mm-hmm. Let's go license out some generic content um, and fill, you know, one of my friends says content, content's what fills up an empty space. And, and you know, he's right. Uh, 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 that, that's often what companies do. They say, let's launch a content platform. Now we've got this platform. We've got to fill it with stuff. Let's find filler. Well, that, that, to go back to Jason Falls' holy smokes test, <laughs> it doesn't pass it except holy smokes, what a waste of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, holy smokes, what a waste of time. Who'd want to read that? And why did the company spend, in the end, six figures mm-hmm. on something that nobody wants to read? Right, right. Well, no, absolutely. Inconsistencies is uh, in- inconsistency, and sometimes, to your point, a lack of quality, uh, but just simply focusing on quantity is an issue that I've witnessed as well. So, um, you know, I. I'm really enjoying this conversation, but I have to ask for your permission to possibly extend out to like another, if you have another eight, 10 minutes, um, you know, we've been talking for like an, an hour and 10 minutes, but I, I still have a couple of questions I thought yeah, would be more. so intriguing to ask. A couple more questions for me. I have to pick up my daughter and, and leave in just a few minutes, pick her up from school, but let's do a lightning round. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. Um, all right, two quick questions. One is... Lifestyle design, I guess. And one thing I didn't want to ignore is all these three to four major areas that you consult, that you have, uh, you know, for different brands, you rate, you go to these conferences, you speak. At the tender age of 32, uh, I, I want to see how you've come about this type of uh, lifestyle. I think many people, listeners, are really jealous right now. So I want to give them a little bit of insider's view on that. Oh, <laughs> Peppercom came to me and hired me because I wasn't a marketer. And one of the things we decided on early on before I ever started working for them was 
you know, if they wanted somebody who had an outsider's mentality, mm-hmm. um, that wouldn't work if I just, you know, if, if I became a full-time agency person in the traditional sense. Um, it wouldn't work for me because that's not the career path I was interested in. That's not my background. And, and, and then on the flip side of that, it wasn't of interest to them because if they were looking for a really good agency person, I would not have been it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were coming to me because I wasn't. Uh, an agency person, and and uh, I've learned an immense amount over the last several years working with people who've spent their lives in, you know, uh, creative and marketing and 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 uh, PR and mm-hmm. uh, all these different uh, marketing fields. Uh, but it's it's been of great value to me that I spend part of my time consulting with Peppercom teams and and clients, and then get a third of my time to still do academic work. Uh, they also hired me in a sense to help speak out on how the communication world is changing so they give me part of my time to really represent Peppercom mm. when it comes to writing for the business press or doing public speaking and, and so what I love is this allows me to have three very discrete parts of my job but there are also parts of my job that overlap mm-hmm. quite a bit because I'm able to take the sorts of things I care about in my academic writing and studies, and I teach too, I teach at uh, Western Kentucky University in pop culture, um, take, take the kinds of things that I'm concerned about there and in some small way mm-hmm. uh, try to help intervene and change the way the industry thinks. Um, you know, client by client in the case of uh, my consulting work and, and, and uh, in a larger sense in terms of trying to translate some of the things I care about into writing for fast company or writing for Inc. Magazine or Harvard Business Review. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and to me, there's great value in that. But on the flip side of that, you know, learning constantly things that I initially as an outsider was very naive about or not fair-minded about and thinking about how things work in, in the corporate world in terms of you know, really understanding the people who care deeply about these issues and who are trying to to, to change the way corporate practice happens inside large organizations and inside agencies uh, and, and learning from, uh, from them all of the, the roadblocks and reasons why uh, mm-hmm. things that from the outside you, you don't understand why companies behave the way they do, at least understanding why and how that happens from people who are obviously not going to work trying to do a bad job mm-hmm. or trying to ignore their customers. Um, uh, to you know, to understand the, the the reasons why things happen and, and uh, uh, why you know, the pressures that are in place in terms of uh, often causing companies to do what they do. So for, so for me, it all bleeds over. You know, sometimes it becomes a time management mm-hmm. issue. And there's an editor of an academic collection that I think I was supposed to turn something into a month and a half ago. <laughs> probably would tell you I don't do such a great job in managing and balancing that stuff out. But for the most part. Uh, uh, you know, there are times when I'm working on a really intense client consulting work, and then there are times where that eases up and gives me a time to get back to uh, writing and focusing on other things. So in the end, it all balances out pretty well. Uh, but, you know, on any given week, I may feel better or worse about that. Nice. No, fabulous answer. And I know you got to run, so I got one final punch question, and it just reminded me, I do have another friend also from Kentucky, so he's going to blame me later. How... <laughs> How should someone plan their first trip to Kentucky? What are some of the really fun stuff to do or not so fun stuff to avoid? Sure, sure. Well, <laughs> it's a good question to ask because I've learned two things. Number one, last year, Lonely Planet named Louisville, Kentucky as the top 
domestic tourist destination in the country. <laughs> Not in terms of volume, but in terms of like their recommendation of uh-huh. here's a really cool town people ought to be going to. Mm-hmm. Um, number two, uh, I learned from my New York friends recently uh, uh, when I was up visiting at Peppercom that it's become very in vogue to come to Kentucky for bachelor parties and do the bourbon trail. <laughs> so, um, you know, Kentucky's known uh, traditionally for uh, bourbon horses. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's cuisine. Uh, I live in Bowling Green. We are the home of the Corvette. So the National Corvette Museum is here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I would say that uh, one of the most fascinating things to me about Kentucky is that depending on who you ask, it's it's a Midwestern state, mm-hmm. or it's a Southern state, or it's Appalachia, <laughs> and uh, and those are all true. So I live, you know, I live 45 minutes from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh-huh. And I live an hour from the Indiana border, right? Kentucky mm-hmm. is, the Cincinnati airport is located in Kentucky. So, uh, you know, and as you go east of Lexington, uh, Kentucky is very much, uh, Kentucky is very much uh, mountain, you know, the Appalachian Mountains and sort of mountain culture and background and, the, you know, the, all the stereotypes that come along with the hillbilly. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so to me, when it comes to the cross-section of, uh, of, of America, Kentucky becomes a really an interesting place to, to visit because if you're coming from the north, it's the gateway to the south. If you're coming from the south, it's the gateway to the Midwest. And if you're coming uh, from the west, it, you know, it leads you into Appalachia. So uh, kind of being at that intersection and growing up in that place has been a, a really interesting uh, upbringing for me in terms of thinking about geography. You know, mm-hmm. if you ask my friends in, in New York or L.A. or San Francisco, we're just all the flyover state. So uh, <laughs> I guess we're all the same. But uh, but but it, you know, it, it was it's fascinating to me in terms of how I think about the way the U.S. is laid out because I I didn't grow up thinking of myself as Southern. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess I very much grew up thinking of myself as a Kentuckian. <laughs> awesome! I love this part. I'm so glad we closed on this one. Um, definitely include show notes and. Uh, some of the tips and tricks to visiting Kentucky, and hopefully I'll make my way there one day. Yeah, that would be great, and if you do, let me know. Uh, please please do stop by, and I'll be happy to be a tour guide. But uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation and would be glad to provide you anything you need and, and, and follow up, and maybe we can, I know there are 100 topics we could have gotten into. Maybe we can do a sequel at some point. Oh, I would love to. Thank you so, so much, Sam. I really enjoyed it. To listen to more episodes of the Face World podcast, please subscribe on iTunes or visit faceworld.com. That is F-E-I-S-W-O-R-L-D, where you can find show notes, links, other tools, and resources. You can also follow me on Twitter at Face World. Until next time, thanks for listening.